I'm Robert Conti, Chief of the Metropolitan Police Department. Unfortunately, traffic fatalities are up in the district, and I need your help to reverse this trend. Seatbelt save lives and reduce the risk of death or injury. Click it or ticket. Welcome to Politics Done Right. I am your host, Egberto Willis. This is a progressive program that will take the mystery out of politics. This is the program that will encourage you to make sure government becomes we the people. Whether you are liberal, progressive, conservative, or otherwise, you get to hear your point of view. We are an independent media outlet that, unlike mainstream media beholden to corporations, we only owe allegiance to you. Remember, you can also send me a tweet at E-G-B-E-R-T-O-W-I-L-L-I-E-S. That is at Egberto Willis. Let us engage. It is Politics Done Right. Welcome to Politics Done Right on KPFT 90.1 FM Houston, Houston Community Radio Station. My name is Egberto Willis. Thank you so kindly for being here, my friends. Look, we have a great show for you today. We have a whole lot of outtakes on uh, uh, the insurrection. We got outtakes on AOC. But most importantly today, we have the one and only Tom Hartman. Tom is going to be discussing the insurrection as well, as well as his new books on the oligarchy. So we are going to have a good time today, my friends. But remember, we are in Fund Drive. It's This is our, I guess, our winter fund drive. And we have to raise quite a bit of moolah. And I don't want to spend a whole lot of time talking about, hey, guys, call in and order. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to do a quick, a quick thing here and ask you to please go ahead and call 713-526-5738. And we have some great offers for you. You know, we have the standard KPFT products that you can go ahead and get the t-shirts, all of that. But for Politics Done Right, what we are offering is we're offering two of my books. The first one is the one that you guys have heard me uh, talk about before. As I see it, Class Warfare, the only resort to right-wing doom. That particular book covers the economy, it covers how things work, it covers patents, all that kind of stuff, and how the way this economic system works has really screwed us all. And the one thing I always talk about is we don't want to only talk about uh, these are the problems, these are the problems. We also want to talk about solutions. So this book as well, as I see it, Class Warfare, the only resort to right-wing doom, includes solutions, and you can have that book for a contribution of $120 to KPFT. And, of course, you can break that up into payments. Just call 713-526-5738. Alternatively, my newest book is called It's Worth It. It's Worth It, How to Talk to Your Right-Wing Relatives, Friends, and Neighbors. What's special about this book? This book is a tad bit larger. And one of the things about this book is we don't want to just look at those people on the right as the enemies. We have to look at the people on the right as good people who have been convinced of an alternate state of reality, something that is not in their best interest. And we've shown that several times on this show that even the things that they say they want are the things that progressives in general provide but they don't know because the bubble in which they live, they are told that those guys are crazy. Those guys are bad. Those guys want to harm you. So if you were told that, you could possibly, and it was inculcated in your mind, it is possible that you could take that. Well, I give some techniques in this book. It's worth it. How to talk to your right-wing relatives, friends, and neighbors. One person, why did you call it it's worth it? Because a lot of people always tell me, Egberto, it's not worth talking to those people. To which I say, it's worth for me talking to every human being to try to make things better, not for just us, but for them as well. So call 713-526-5738, 713-526-5738. That book as well, It's Worth It, is a contribution of $120. But guess what? The deal is this. Get both of them. Get both of these books at the same time. And the contribution is then $200 
uh, for both books. And again, you know the book isn't worth that. That's not what we sell the book for. But that is, uh, it's a token to ask you to please help KPFT, help us continue, help us rebuild that building, help us keep giving you the message as it needs to be. Uh, we're going to be back in a little bit, but I tell you what, you have full programming today with just a little insert here. So please stick with us and let's get busy. A few videos ago, I said the one thing we cannot allow is for somehow Republicans to sweep this unpatriotic, seditious insurrection under the rug, to make it seem like it was just a riot, to make it seem like it wasn't important and that we need to move on. We cannot allow that to happen. This was an attempted coup on the government. So in Congress today, Representative Hakeem Jeffries did exactly what needed to be done to always keep these guys on their toes and not allow them to not let America see that what they did was unpatriotic. What they did was seditious. What we had was an insurrection. It wasn't a riot. It was an insurrection. It was an attempt to take down this government. It was unpatriotic. And we have to make it as make the association. That party is an unpatriotic party. The leadership attempted to bring the government down. Check out Akeem Jeffries and let's take it on the other side. We're going to work with Republicans whenever and wherever possible. We did it with Donald Trump. But the notion of you coming here lecturing us on your first day before this committee, it's not about words. It's about actions. You know what? Explain your actions on January 7th when you supported an insurrection. <laughs> you said it was not about words, it's about actions. Those actions, Mr. Chairman, in my view, were unpatriotic to provide aid and comfort to what Republicans in many parts of the country have characterized as a violent insurrection incited by the former president of the United States of America. You also said that any mistake is not your fault in terms of what's being taught to others. That's what the former president of the United States peddled for four years. He took no responsibility for anything. And Mr. Chairman, there's some members on the other side of the aisle, including perhaps former NFL players, who defended that kind of irresponsible behavior. So it's just hard to be lectured here, given the actions that have been taken. And I would just hope that we're going to proceed some measure of truth decency and intellectual integrity as we make our arguments, even though we know we're going to fiercely disagree, as has been in the case in the past. I'm happy to yield. Okay. Was an insurrection when in 2016, six, uh, seven of your colleagues objected? Was an insurrection for the last three uh, Republican wins, uh, presidential wins that, that they objected? No, it was not. It was a voice. It was having the people realize you had some concerns. Now, in terms of... Thank you. Reclaiming my, reclaiming my time, you asked the question. A violent insurrection resulted in the spilling of American blood. People died. The capital was desecrated. Urine and feces was left behind. The Confederate flag was bandied about. That didn't even happen in this capital during the Civil War. The Trump flag was placed in the stead of the American flag. That's an insurrection, that's sedition, that's undemocratic, that's problematic, and the American yeah. thing to do is to stand up to it. Now that is the way it's done. You make sure and categorize all the seditious acts. Not rioting, the seditious acts, the desecration of the capital. You do that. You make, you associate these violent unpatriotic behavior with those who perpetrated it when they didn't get their way to those who perpetrated it even though they knew it was based on a lie Hakeem Jeffries that is the template of how this entire session must go whenever an attempt is made to call any one of the progressives or democrats uh, somehow unpatriotic or whatever remember what Steve Schmidt said, former Republican, now turned Democrat, because he said, there's only one party left in this country that will secure our democracy. Remember, these guys were willing to take down the country for Trump. Someone that's not even worthy for party, 
for Trump. Hakeem Jeffries hit the nail on the head. Hits the nail on the head. Folks, don't forget we are in Fun Drive now. Please give us a call at 713-526-5738. Again, that number is 713-526-5738. Support us in however you can. If you can give $5, give $5. If you can give $10, give $10. If you can give $25, give $25. If you can give $40, give $40. And if you want to really help us out, get one or two of our books. Uh, We are going with, as I see it, Class Warfare, The Only Resort to Right-Wing Doom. I wrote this book a few ago, and this book is really good on on, on really instructing in simple terms, the economy, how it works, etc. Or get It's Worth It, How to Talk to Your Right-Wing Relative another book I wrote. This is a good one to uh, really kind of not only inform on how our system works, but how you can put it in terms to talk to other people. 713-526-5738. Again, that number is 713-526-5738. Of course, you can always go to kpft.org as well, kpft.org. But please support KPFT so that we can continue doing what we need to do. Okay, let's get busy and continue. Representative Nancy Mace, Republican of South Carolina. I actually thought she was different. She voted, if I recall correctly, for the impeachment. It seemed like she had a soul. It seemed like it was going okay. But somehow, you remember that movie where Al Pacino said, I try to leave, but they keep pulling me back in, or something to that effect. It seemed like that's what's happening to a whole lot of Republicans. They got a spine, and for some reason, they must have checked the polls to notice that within the Republican Party proper, the ones who vote, Donald Trump is very powerful, and nobody wants to take that stand. Nobody wants to take the moral stand. Nobody wants to take the patriotic stand to start that push back into what we ought to be. And instead, they simply cower. We have a few of them, about 10 of them, that continue to to try to push on, continue to try to push on. I want you to check this out because uh, Nancy Mace apparently thought that she had to come out against AOC to prove her bona fides to the Republican, the new Republican Party, to the real Trump Party. And how did she do that? By claiming AOCs, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, uh, account of what happened on Insurrection Day, on the unpatriotic, seditious Insurrection Day by several Republican Trump followers, that somehow uh, she wanted to get back at AOC because AOC exaggerated, AOC lied. Well, you know who turned out to be the liar? Check this out. And so we go into her office. And um, I'm at like a 10, right? Like I am at a full 10, fight or flight, thought I was going to die like 10 minutes ago, then thought I was gonna die again because I have to tell you, we're outside in this hallway alone. I'm banging on this door and I'm thinking, and I'm fully expecting um, one of these insurrectionists to turn the corner with a gun and that it would be over again. Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez described her terrifying experience at the Capitol on January the 6th uh, in that Instagram Live video earlier this week. And ever since, conservative media has been trying to smear her as a liar, claiming she exaggerated how much danger she was in because she was not at the Capitol building, which the rioters breached, but in a nearby office building on the Capitol complex. And now her Republican colleague, Nancy Mace of South Carolina, has joined the bad faith attacks on AOC's credibility, tweeting yesterday, quote, I'm two doors down from AOC and no insurrection has stormed our hallway, along with a Fox News article about AOC facing backlash for her account of the events. Nancy Mace piled on even further in an interview on Fox News that afternoon. Not at one moment during the events of January 6th that any rioter or any insurrectionist come down the hallways where our offices are located. I initially you know, took to task the press for making these claims, taking these claims to apocalyptic levels, and, uh, and all I did was state the facts. I live in, in reality. I deal with facts and not fiction. And I said that there were no rioters in the hallways of Cannon. I'm two doors down from you. And, and she lost it today. She doesn't deal in reality. She hasn't been doing that today. I think it's really important that we take members to task when they're not being honest with the American people. Hold on. 
First off, AOC never claimed there were insurrectionists in her hallway. But more importantly, in terms of the threat, Nancy Mace was there that day too. So what did she say about it at the time? Well, in the midst of the riots on January the 6th, she tweeted about, quote, evacuating her office in Cannon due to a nearby threat. A nearby threat. The next morning, she described the danger she felt she was in. At one point, when we were evacuated because of the, the bomb threat, the pipe bomb threat, I was stuck in a narrow tunnel with 100 other uh, people, staff and members of Congress. It was a very dangerous situation. Lives were put at risk. And my message to Americans today is it was a very sad day in our nation's history. It was a very dangerous situation. Mace gave more details to a South Carolina newspaper that day, saying she barricaded herself inside her office during the attack, fearing that Trump supporters she had seen staying at her hotel might target her. After she voted to certify the electoral vote, Mace said she decided to sleep in her office that night. In fact, she was so fearful in the wake of the attack that she told a local news station she intended to carry a gun on Capitol Hill, saying, quote, I will not be put in that situation again. So, to be clear, Nancy Mace wants to carry a gun and barricaded herself in her office. But AOC is lying about and exaggerating the threat. These people are shameful. We all know the attackers were spread out across the complex. We've seen the images, and the feds are seeing data like this. Those dots are the cell phone locations of insurrectionists inside the Capitol building on January the 6th. It's part of a remarkable set of data being used to identify individuals in the mob with the help of Big Brother. We, now, it, it behooves me, Donald Trump has taught his pew a lot. And this is what he's taught them. Irrespective of all the evidence out there, you may be on tape, you may be on video, you may have written something, you may have tweeted something, you may have texted something. It doesn't really matter. Just lie. And even if the evidence stares you in the face, lie. Because if you live in an alternate state of reality, reality is what you've written, what you've texted, what's on video, and all those things, that's reality. But you're in, a, you, you, you're in an alternate state of reality, and the people who follow you are happy to live in an alternate state of reality, and thus... You don't have to abide by reality. I thought Nancy Mace was different. I thought she was going to be the change. She's young. She's new. I thought she was going to be the change, the new Republican. It turns out that they are so fearful of their base that they won't do it. Change party, girl. The Democratic Party is available, from what they tell me, to people that are blue, to people that are conservative, to people that are progressive, and fight your morals through. Fight what you believe in. I hope you like that. Now, folks, let's uh, get uh, busy with one little quick pitch again, and then we'll be right back to the regular programming. Please consider getting It's Worth It, how to talk to your right-wing relatives, friends, and neighbors. Contribution of $120 to KPFT gets you this book as the token of thank you, as well as, as I see it, Class Warfare, the only resort to right-wing doom. That one is as well a donation of $120 to KPFT, uh, in the, of course, in the name of Politics Done Right. Uh, folks, please go ahead. By the way, if you get both of them, it's a $200 contribution, and uh, you get both of them. Contribution to KPFT, 90.1 FM, Houston's community station. That's how we stay alive, folks. Let's get back, and uh, we'll be back one more time, and let's get busy. This is a must-see on GPS. Farid Zakaria did a perfect analysis of how the, the GOP became what it is today. Check this out and then we'll take it on the other side. The real big lie at the heart of the modern Republican Party, though, is about public policy, not conspiracy theories. Since the 1930s, Republicans promised their voters the repeal of FDR's New Deal. When the next Republican president, Dwight Eisenhower, did nothing of the sort, the modern conservative movement emerged, furiously branding Ike a traitor. When LBJ enacted the Great Society, Conservatives pledged that once elected, they would tear it all down and never did. Ronald Reagan launched his political career 
by denouncing Medicare as a direct path to socialism. If passed, he famously warned, You and I are going to spend our sunset years telling our children and our children's children what it once was like in America when men were free. Of course, as president for eight years, Reagan left Medicare largely intact and actually ended up expanding the program. In the early 1990s, House leader Newt Gingrich doubled down on a rhetoric of radicalism and extremism. Revolution and described political opponents as the embodiment of evil who win only because they lie and cheat. Ted Cruz follows the same strategy today still. His 2016 platform included promises to repeal Obamacare, abolish the IRS, and balance the budget, plans that he knew could never get enacted. But they were just the right red meat for the base. He treats his supporters like cannon fodder, whipping them into hysteria and sending them into battle. The Republican Party endlessly crowed about repealing and replacing Obamacare, only to come to power without any viable plan, and then quickly accommodated itself to the reality it had vowed to overturn. This entire decades-long strategy has led millions of Republicans to feel cheated and lied to by their leaders, creating an atmosphere of paranoia and suspicion toward anyone who is not utterly extreme. It also feeds the notion that true conservatism fails because of some kind of treason, betrayal, or collusion. It is a short and direct line from the tactics of Newt Gingrich to the January 6th Capitol riot. If you're looking for an alternative path for a conservative leader, one who even knows how to appeal to populist and nationalist sentiment, look at British Prime Minister Boris Johnson. Johnson, who initially and badly bungled COVID-19, is tackling the pandemic with much greater seriousness. He has been slowly but surely reshaping his party to make it more compatible with modern-day Britain. His cabinet is remarkably diverse, with two of the three most powerful positions filled by Asian Britons. Describing his plans for big spending during the pandemic and after, Johnson admits... It sounds like a new deal. And all I can say is, if that is so, then that is how it's meant to sound and how it's meant to be. Because that is what the times demand. A government that is powerful and determined and that puts its arms around people at a time of crisis. We will build, build, build. Build back better, build back greener, build back faster. If Republicans are searching for a conservatism that can work in the modern era, they should first stop lying to their own voters. Then they could look to examples like Britain to... When your entire life is online, you need more than just speed from your internet. Xfinity gives you reliable in-home Wi-Fi coverage, plus protection from Wi-Fi network threats. Check out our amazing offers on Xfinity Internet. You'll get fast speed and Wi-Fi coverage you can count on. Plus, get advanced security free with the XFi Gateway, so you can keep the connected devices in your home protected from network threats. Just log in and activate through the Xfinity app. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today to learn more. Restrictions apply. When you rely on the Internet for everything, you need speed that can handle anything. And now, Xfinity delivers Wi-Fi speed faster than a gig. Check out our amazing offers on Internet and learn about the latest breakthrough from Xfinity. Wi-Fi speed faster than a gig. That's more than enough speed to power all your devices and then some. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today to learn more. Restrictions apply. Gig Wi-Fi requires gig speed and compatible XFi gateway. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed. Bring their party into the world of facts and reality. That was great. Now, I differ with Farid Zakaria with one thing. He makes it seem as if the lie that they tell the American people is that they're going to repeal something that they won't. I think it's deeper than that. The lie that they tell the American people is that government doesn't work. The lie that they tell the American people is that progressive policies that Americans really need and actually that Americans say they want is somehow detrimental to the economic system or create some sort of a communist government. That is the real lie. Not that they are going to repeal policy. They know that they can't repeal policy because when Americans see the reality of the repealing of those policies, they would react and not react very well. So instead, they pump them up with lies. And when the lies don't materialize, they have to create conspiracy stories. And that's what we get. However, we look at uh, Boris Johnson in Britain and he acknowledges what all progressives know and he does it without saying it build back better build back greener 
have a powerful government that can hug its population when they are in need. He is describing what it is to be a progressive. Forget about the other issues about what he thinks of internationally. Forget about the other issues about what he thinks ideology, ideologically. We don't care about somebody's personal ideology. We care about how they affect a government to work for the people. And those values that do that are progressive values. And when you see a Boris Johnson sound like a Johnson from America, like a Roosevelt from America, like a now Biden for America to some extent, as he says, I am not going to allow you to decide how we spend for the best in the best interests of the American people. After all, under the policies of Democrats over the last hundred years, that is when America's economy has been successful by more than two times that of Republican government. So, Republicans, Farid Zakaria, heat is warning. Unfortunately, I doubt that will happen. Hope you like that, folks. 713-526-5738. 713-526-5738. The book, As I See It, Class Warfare, The Only Resort to Right-Wing Doom. $120 contribution in name, politics, and right on KPFT. Or it's worth it. How to talk to your right-wing relatives, friends, and neighbors. Again, another contribution of $120 to KPFT in the honor of politics and right. Or you can get them both for $200. Guess what's up now? The one and only Tom Hartman. We are honored once again. I've told this guy every time he comes out with something new, we've got to have it. And Tom Hartman is here with us. For hey, those of you who, hey, how you doing, buddy? You know, but you know, you, you answered before I got a chance to give you the proper introduction, my brother. Okay. I want to give you that. You know, Tom Hartman is the progressive national and international talk show host. He's been named the most important progressive host by Talkers Magazine. He's also a New York Times bestselling author whose books have been translated into multiple languages. Tom Hartman's show has been a top 10 talk show, talk radio show for over a decade. It's one that all of us live up to. All of us that are doing this, this the guy. And he's here to discuss his new book, The Hidden History of American Oligarchy, Reclaiming Our Democracy for from the Ruling Class. Tom Hartman, how are you doing today, my brother? I'm great. It's, it's always wonderful to be here with you, Egberto. Well, I mean, it's always Thank great you being everybody. with you. It's always great seeing you. Last time we met, we could actually shake hands and have a hug in, in where was that, Philadelphia, was I think. One. Yeah, Net Roots in Philadelphia. Now we're all locked up for a year. Yeah, <laughs> it's very strange. But, but, you know, we're still alive. Hey, we're still alive. We're still, and we, we made it through so far, so good. We just have to hold on a bit longer. But anyhow, Tom, um, you told me you were going to write this book. And, you know, I hadn't read it. I scanned through it. You know, I, I knew the interview was coming up and I said, oh, I got to get to it. And, and I went to a particular part on it to say, you were reading the tea leaves, man. Mm. You were reading the tea leaves on, on the oligarchy, uh, the formation, not only the formation of the oligarchy, but how it needed a sort of a uh, insurrection uh, to come, I mean, lead the insurrection to kind of metastasize itself. I tell you what, why, why don't you tell me why did you write the book first of all? Well, I, I wrote the book because I've been watching this process uh, my entire life, and I'm getting increasingly alarmed by it. Um, uh, over the last 20 years, we have seen America pretty much slide into full-blown oligarchy. And oligarchy is defined as rule by the rich, essentially. A small number of very wealthy people take over the political system of a nation. And the principal signal of an oligarchy, the, the, the signature that you see in the data that indicates oligarchy, is when government stops doing what the majority of the people want, which is what's called democracy, and starts doing what the oligarchs want, you know, the very, very rich, which is oligarchy. And uh, a couple of years ago, Gillens and Page, these two researchers out of uh, Northwestern and, and Princeton, published this mind-boggling study where they went back and looked at pre-Reagan revolution, by and large, what the most majority of people wanted, pre-1980, what the majority of people wanted, got translated into legislation. It's how we got 
Medicare and Medicaid and long-term unemployment insurance and food stamps and Pell Grants and, and housing assistance and, and you know, anti-discrimination laws and civil rights laws and voting rights. I, I could go on, right? I, I mean, the list would be a hundred things long. That all happened in the 40s, 50s, say 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, and right up until the early 1980s. Reagan comes in and flips our system upside down. It really was a revolution and not just an economic revolution, a political revolution. He brings in the oligarchs with a little help from the Supreme Court, and, and they, they set up shop and take over. And what Gillens and Page found was that um, they published their study in 2014, but what they found is in the, in the roughly decade and a half leading up to that, since, since about 2000, what the average person wants, as measured by public opinion polls on public policy, almost never gets translated into public policy. It's a, the, the association between the two has been reduced to what they described as random noise. Whereas what the oligarchs want, what the top 1% wants is almost always translated into public policy or, is, or when public policy is created, it's most often driven by what the oligarchs want. You know, there was basically one um, legislative accomplishment of the entire four years of the Trump administration, a $2 trillion tax cut for billionaires and big corporations. That's oligarchy. The problem in Britain, and the, and, the, and the thing that keeps me up at night is that oligarchies tend to be very unstable. They tend not to last very long, typically not more than a generation. And what comes out of them typically is one of two things. Either the people rise up, overthrow the oligarchs, and, and you flip back into a democracy. This is when a democracy becomes an oligarchy. Either, either the, the small D Democrats or small R Republicans, the people who believe in a democratic republic, flip the country back, which happened here in the United States twice, once with the Civil War, when we fought back the oligarchy in the South, and once in the 1930s when Franklin Roosevelt fought yeah. back the oligarchs who had crashed the economy. Or the oligarchs look around and say, hey, pretty good system we got here. We're scraping all this money off the, off the middle class, and we're getting richer and richer, and these pesky people, we got to do something about it. And they flip the government into a police state. And you're watching that happen right now in Hungary, in Russia, in, in, in Venezuela, in uh, Brazil, in the Philippines, in Turkey, in, in um, uh, Egypt. I mean, you, you could just go through the list of countries that at one point were democratic, the oligarchs took over, and then when the oligarchs were challenged, when the people were in the streets, the oligarchs said, okay, that's it, end of, end of discussion, we're gonna go full police state. And we're on that knife's edge right now here in Let the me- United States. You just mentioned police state and, you know, uh, did, did it bother you when you realized there were a whole lot of organized ex-military guys uh, going through the Capitol during the insurrection? Didn't surprise me at all. Not at all? No, I mean, that, in fact, that's what you would expect. Um, the fascism is most attractive to people who have what are called authoritarian personalities. Robert Altmaier wrote a book about this called The Authoritarians. John Dean, um, based on Altmaier's work, uh, work and research, wrote a book called Conservatives Without Conscience, which is about authoritarianism within the conservative movement. And you know, the broad estimate is about 20% of Americans are strong authoritarians. Um, and 99% of authoritarians are authoritarian followers. They're authoritarian leaders in their own homes. They tend to be the husbands who beat their wives or yell right. at their kids or whatever. But um, in the grand scheme of their lives, they're really authoritarian followers. They're looking for Big Daddy to keep them safe. This comes out of, uh, or the best guess is, <laughs> there's, a, there's a big debate about this in the psychology community, but the best guess is this comes out of uh, periods of, of terrible insecurity during their childhood. And uh, so, you know, they're looking for somebody to say, don't worry, I'll take care of you. I'm in charge. I alone can, can solve the problem. Trump, yes. And, and, and they bind to that big daddy and just, you know, you can't peel them away because this is, this is now the life raft for them, the psychological, emotional, and political life raft. And people who join the military and people who become police officers are way, you know, authoritarians are way overrepresented in those two populations. Instead of being 20% of the population, the percentage of people who are authoritarians in the police and the military is, uh, depending on which study you look at and which area you're looking at and which part of the country you're looking at, almost always well over 50%. And sometimes oh, much over 50%. Wow. 
Yeah. So, so of course, if you've got authoritarian followers in the military or among police departments, they're going to bond with an authoritarian leader like Donald Trump or Ted Cruz or Josh Hawley or, or Tom Cotton, uh, you know, the guys who are competing to be the heirs to the mantle of Trump. And uh, so, no, I wasn't surprised. I, I, I was horrified, but I wasn't surprised. It was disconcerting because um, I, I, I wonder many times if Donald Trump thought he had more support in these forces, you know, remember how the National Guard didn't show up until very much later. And if he thought, I, I wondered if, if the plan just kind of went awry a little bit, but that it was much better plan than we thought. I think it was. And, and I think, you know, we've got this smoking gun memo now that the acting Secretary of Defense, who Donald Trump put into his position the day after it was announced that he lost the election issued this memo to the DC National Guard saying, you may not show up unless I give the permission. And for four or for four hours, at least during the storming of the Capitol, numerous people were begging him for that permission and he was withholding it. Um, that said, you know, I, I, I sure hope the FBI is interviewing this guy and all the people around him. But my question about that, what do you think they really, what do you think the intent would have been to hurt the, hurt the Congress people, leave us without, like, uh, decapitate the government, the, the, yes. the, the congressional yes. part? And yes, then- hang Mike Pence, assassinate Nancy Pelosi and whoever else you can find. Um, and then Donald Trump would walk in and declare himself emperor, basically. And it would be the end of the American experiment and the beginning of strongman rule, just as has happened in Russia, in Hungary, in Germany in the 30s in uh, uh you know in italy in the 20s uh etc do you think that would have been sustainable with the current military that we have it's hard to say you know where trump tripped up is he has strong support in the military and among police among the rank and file because that's where your authoritarian file right. um he does he didn't have the level of support that he needed in the senior command of the military. I believe that the one force that probably prevented America from, from experiencing a complete Trump coup was the Joint Chiefs. You know, was the, the letter that they wrote, maybe? The, the, mil, the whole military command structure. The, these guys take seriously their commitment to the Constitution and to American democracy. Right. It, it is a shame how close we came. Now, a part two of your book, how oligarchy led to the Civil War. Tell me why did you do that? <laughs> Well, you know, this is the, the, you know, I mentioned earlier that twice we've had oligarchs rise up and challenge democracy in the United States. Um, the first was in the, in the uh, early, the first half of the 1800s. And uh, it was the result of a technological innovation, the cotton gin. Mm-hmm. Um, cotton seeds are notoriously difficult to pull out of cotton. Mm-hmm. And the bottleneck in cotton production was taking out the seeds, cleaning what's called cleaning the cotton, carding the cotton. And, and it had to be done by hand, you know, and, and um, Eli Whitney invented this contraption, the cotton gin, that could do the work. One machine could do the work of 50 enslaved people trying to clean the cotton. And, but it was a very expensive machine and it came into common, you know, it was, it was widely available to purchase by 1815, more or less, 1810. It was invented in 1798, um, but it took a while to get it to market. And so the largest plantations in the South bought these cotton gins, and now they were literally 50 times more productive. I mean, cleaning the cotton was the big bottleneck between growing it and shipping it. Mm-hmm. You know, most of it went to Europe, much of it went to Europe anyway. And um, by eliminating that bottleneck, they became so much more productive and so much more wealthy that they wiped out all their smaller neighbors. Because there were a lot of, you know, 10 acre and 50 acre and 100 acre cotton farms in the South, across the South, a lot of them. And by the 1830s, by the middle of the 1830s, the vast majority of them were gone. They had been run out of business. Their land had been bought by the giant plantations. And the people who'd lived on those farms were now tenants uh, you know, growing cotton, still growing cotton on the same land on the same and living in the same house, but they didn't own it anymore. Um, sort of like what we saw when Reagan deregulated, the, right. you know, stopped enforcing the antitrust laws in 83. And, and suddenly we had farm age, you know, Willie Nelson trying to help out farmers. It was kind of the same dynamic. Well, what happened was over the next decade from 1835 to 1845, these 
uh, giant plantations, uh, the, the, the people who owned them reached out to take over political power in the Southern states, succeeded in doing that and turned the, uh, the, southern, the Southern states, which already were police states. I mean, the second amendment was passed to protect the slave right. in Virginia and, and South Carolina. I think we've talked about this on your program. Yeah. Um, so they already had that police state apparatus and they flipped their government into just full-blown fascist oligarchy. oligarchy. But the problem they had was that seeing a functioning democracy north of the Mason-Dixon line was creating, you know, was rousing the rabble, as it were. And, and not just the people who were enslaved, but, you know, the, the, the white small farm owners who'd been thrown off their land as a result of this, this consolidation. And so the, the oligarchs of the South decided that their best means to, to survival was to end democracy in the North. And so they declared war on us. And we fought that war and 600,000 people died. And, uh, you know, we, we broke up that oligarchy to a certain extent. I mean, if Lincoln hadn't been assassinated, we would have succeeded. He, it was a huge mistake Lincoln made in choosing Johnson as his VP, but that's a digression. That's a whole other story. So then the second time uh, it happened, again, it was technology. It was, it was the, the railroad and steel and oil oligarchs who came out of the Industrial Revolution in the 1880s. Standard oil and all of them, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Rockefeller, Carnegie, et cetera. And, and, and Morgan and, and, and these guys, you know, rose up and, and took over the government again. In fact, in the 1920s, uh, Harding, Hoover, uh, Coolidge and Hoover put them in charge. I mean, you had Morgan as the secretary of the treasury um, and they crashed the economy, of course, because they had just, you know, during the roaring 20s, so-called, uh, the wealth of average people actually went down, pay actually went down. But all this money went to the top and they had to have some place to put that money. They poured it in the stock market, created a huge bubble and, you know, the rest is history. But that opened a space for Franklin Roosevelt to take them on. And when he started talking about he was going to tear down the oligarchy, he called them economic royalists. When he was going to take them down, they they got this group of 100,000 uh, right wing veterans, this, this very, very conservative veterans group. Um, signed up to go to the White House and kidnap and either kill or imprison Franklin Roosevelt. And they were going to replace him, you know, with a good conservative Republican. And I, this was an actual coup attempt. Yeah, that, I, I, I didn't know you were going to. I, I, I read about that. Yeah. Yeah. And the only reason that it fell apart was because the, the, the it's called the businessman's conspiracy. You can look it up. was because these guys tried to hire Smedley Butler. He was the most famous military hero in the country at the time you know, the hero of World War One and the Spanish-American War, and Butler blew the whistle on. And, uh, you know, the Congress held hearings for about a week, and then FDR shut it all down because he was afraid other people would get ideas. But he then went to war with the oligarchs and put them back in the bottle, and they stayed there until the 1970s, until the mid-1970s. And then the Supreme Court let them back out again with these two decisions in 76. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So that, that 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 is a shame, and and now I think you're. This is the one that you call not a third oligarchy rises yeah. with Reagan. Uh, what would you call Trump? The the you know the Trump era. Well, it's it's the logical extension of the process that Reagan put into place, which was shifting America from being a functioning democracy and into a full blown oligarchy. Um, you could uh, you could build a case, and I do in the book that. Uh, Reagan and many of the people who were with him on this actually thought they were doing the best thing for America. Uh, back in 1951, Russell Kirk in his book, The Conservative Mind, that kicked off the modern conservative movement, animated Barry Goldwater, William F. Buckley, and all these other guys, you know, made the argument that if the middle class continued to get wealthier and wealthier, at that point in time in 51, the middle class was actually, their wealth and their income was growing at a faster rate, percentage rate, than was yes. the wealth of the top 1%. And Russell Kirk said, if, these, if this middle class gets wealthier and wealthier and more and more independent, you're going to start seeing um, young people disrespecting their elders. You're going to see a breakdown of society. Young people will disrespect their elders. Women will disrespect men and their, and their husbands. Minorities will demand equality with white people. And society is going to fall apart. And, and you know, at first and throughout the 50s and even the early 60s, people thought, eh, Russell Kirk, he's a crank. Um, you know, and Barry Goldwater's into him, but he's still a crank. But then in 60, 61, the birth control pill was legalized. So by 64, 65, you had a full-blown women's rights movement in the work, you know, want, wanting rights in the workplace and independence from their husbands. 
I, you know, I still remember in 1972 um, was when the law changed in 71. Louise and I got married in 71. For her to get a credit card, the bank required my signature. Yes, imagine that. Get credit cards. So, so anyhow, you had this full-blown women's rights movement, women burning their bras. You had young people saying, hell no, I'm not going to go to Vietnam and burning their draft cards and take a smoking pot and growing their hair long. And you had African-Americans, you know, Martin Luther King leading a civil rights movement. And, and by the late 60s, you had cities that were on fire. And at that point, the conservatives who, who had been poo-pooing Russell Kirk looked around and said, holy crap, he was right. And, and, and you know, our society is disintegrating. And we've got to dial back the wealth of the middle class. And so Reagan comes into power thinking the most effective way to do that is to destroy the unions. And as, as a special bonus, the unions are the principal funding source for the Democratic Party. So, hey, we can create a permanent uh, Republican Permanent majority. Exactly. Moral majority. Yeah. I promise just a 30 second interruption. As I see it, class warfare, the only resort to right wing doom book that I wrote a few ago, as well as it's worth it. How to talk to your right wing relatives, friends and neighbors. So let's say you're into yoga or Pilates or maybe you dabble in gymnastics like me. Either way, you know, being flexible is key to doing what you love. That's why Smoothie King created this stretch and flex smoothie for people like us. With whole fruits and organic veggies, plus type 2 collagen. Make it part of your daily fitness routine to support flexibility and joint health. So try the Stretch and Flex smoothie in tart cherry or pineapple kale. Order online today for pickup or delivery. Smoothie King, rule the day. Breaking up is hard to do, but when it comes to your wireless carrier, you should have left a while ago. You're over the big three carriers. You deserve better. Xfinity Mobile. Now you can get unlimited with 5G included for just $30 a month on the nation's fastest, most reliable network. So break free from the big three and save with Xfinity Mobile. Take the savings challenge at XfinityMobile.com slash savings to see how much you can save when you get Xfinity Mobile and Internet together. Reduced speeds at 20 gigabytes per line. Most reliable based on Root Metrics U.S. report. Results vary, not an endorsement. It's worth it. I just wrote that one this year. Folks, please give us a call at 713-526-5738. Again, that number is 713-526-5738 or go to kpft.org. Each of these are $120 contribution or you can get both of them for or $200 contribution. Now, back to Tom Hartman. You, what is interesting is that there's another piece that I read. You know, like I said, I selectively go to certain parts of the book. And I noticed you, you, you spoke about something I like to talk about a whole lot, and that was how the Powell Manifesto was so well designed to yeah. execute the, the, the skeleton of this movement. Why don't you tell us a little about that? Well, in, in 71, you know, in the late 60s, as I said, it became obvious to, to these conservative politicians that, that, or they believed that Russell Kirk was right. And they thought that we were in the middle of a process that was going to lead to anarchy and the disintegration of America. And so uh, the, the head of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, Eugene Sindor, um, met with his old friend and neighbor, uh, Lewis Powell, who was a tobacco lawyer, and asked him to come up with a blueprint for recovering America's greatness, greatness you know, for stopping the chaos. And what Powell said was, OK, we've got to pack the courts with our people, you know, no more of the civil liberties BS. We've got to take over the schools and the colleges. We need to control the textbooks in elementary and high schools. And we need, and we need to uh, be putting our people in, as professors in uh, poli-sci and, and econ classes in particular. Um, so no more socialism being taught in our schools and history classes as well. Um, you know, we need to, we need our, our people need to buy the media. We need to get control of the media and create our own media infrastructure. We need to build think tanks that can get our ideas out and produce papers that will be, you know, our letters to the editor and op-eds that will be published all over newspapers and, and across the country, um, you know, and on and on and on. I mean, you're very familiar with the Powell Memo too. Um, and the, by that was in 71. In 72, Nixon put him on the Supreme Court. Yes. Uh, you know, he was part of these two <laughs> decisions, Buckley and, and Bellotti in 76 and 78, that said that when billionaires or corporations own politicians, it's no longer considered bribery or corruption. Oh, no, it's, it's free, it, free it's speech. Exactly. It's speech, man. You know, you remember we were we we did a few things together at Move to Amend in Washington, mm -hmm. D.C. I mean, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, it, it is it is mind boggling that uh, that how, how things come around. Now, folks, before we go any further, you have to get this book, American Oligarchy. And let me tell you, because I think. 
what is, one of the things I like about your books is that it doesn't only come with complaints. It actually says what we have to do. And, the, the, and, and whenever I pick up your book, that is actually the first place I normally go to, to kind of check out. Okay, so what do we do? So folks, you need to go ahead and get that book. It is The Hidden History of American Oligarchy Reclaiming or Democracy from the Ruling Class. But if I have Tom here, I got to pick Tom's brain on where we are right now. So Tom, yeah. where are we in our democracy? But before I handle that, I want to say, Neoliberal versus conservative differences. Well, increasingly, there's not much difference. I mean, you know, historically, uh, conservative conservative meant um, in favor of social change, but slow and gradual. Don't disrupt things in the process of improving things. Um, that was kind of the functional definition up until the 1950s. Obviously, there were strains of of you know segregationist racism uh, within the conservative movement and and. Uh, uh, bizarre machoism and things like that, but they were they were viewed as the as the lunatic fringe. I mean, witness uh, Dwight Eisenhower's 1954 letter to his brother Edgar, you know, saying, you know, there are some, uh, you know, Texas oil billionaires who think you can get rid of Social Security and do away with these uh, social welfare programs. He says their number is small and they are stupid. But the the neoliberal philosophy, the idea that basically society should be run for the ruling class, is just an extension of this idea of creating stability in society. It infected the Democratic Party in large part because Reagan was so effective at destroying the unions in the 12 years of the Reagan-Bush administration that Bill Clinton had to go hat in hand to bankers and insurance companies begging for money. Um, you know, He created the DLC so that corporate money could be funneled into the Democratic Party. Before that, the Democratic Party was almost entirely funded by average working people through their union dues, you know, it was the unions. But uh, Reagan, Reagan gutted the unions. Um, so, uh, you know, when he started, you know what is so yeah. sad about the unions part though. Um, and, and I find it, I don't know how I try to find a way to get around it. It's amazing how negative a large percentage of Americans are to unions. And that is because of how they, you know, the, the, these guys have done such a good job of defining socialism, defining unions, defining what those keywords mean. And it kind of cauterizes into people's heads that, Union, bad. Socialism, bad. All these things that, yeah. that come 40 years of propaganda. Yes. Yeah. And so, we go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I finish your thought. I'm sorry. Yeah. What I was going to say that I, I think that the job that you do, the job that we're trying to do in the independent progressive media is what has to keep getting done because the reality is right now, um, there's no one speaking to, there's no one really trying to, I don't, want to, I don't want to sound presumptuous and say educate Americans, but to at least let them be more aware of how things really work. Your thoughts? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think that uh, the key to solving our, you know, I talked about the media in the book, you know, that, that we need to be building a strong progressive media infrastructure, and we don't have that right now. Um, but in terms of where we're at right now, I mentioned that oligarchies typically don't last more than a generation before they either are overthrown or they become police states. And the, the principal weapon that oligarchy uses against democracy is cynicism. Mm -hmm. Cynicism is poison to democracy. And because democracy requires citizen engagement and if citizens become cynical, they don't engage. And therefore you can't have a functioning mm -hmm. And so we are, you know, we've got about 18 months here. And if Joe Biden and the Democrats can't uh, destroy the filibuster and actually accomplish things for the American people so that we can go back to what public opinion polls show the majority of Americans want, the majority of Americans get. I mean, for, for over 20 years now, the majority mm -hmm. of Americans have wanted no more student debt, no more medical debt, you know, national health care, et cetera. Um, if we can't, if they can't pull this off in the next 18 months, then the next president will be a Republican and will be almost certainly a fascist. And that's the end of the American experiment. Um, because people I, they'll say the same thing they did, you know, with Obama and Clinton, you know, nice talk, but hey, you didn't get a damn thing done. I, you know, and I'm wondering if I'm seeing Biden, who I once considered a true neoliberal, I am actually wanting to, I'm actually seeing a little, another side of him oh, yeah. uh, the, with the 1.9 trillion and sticking to it with the, with the stipends that he's given to the American people, which 
eventually should turn into something like basic income. I am starting to see sort of a resolve that says we're not going to repeat the same mistakes. And if they do that, even if they're not a full-fledged, full progressive, I think it, it, it's a good start. Your thoughts on that? I completely agree. And it's why I have not been willing to go full circular firing squad on Biden at all. I mean, not at all. You know, I I, I didn't like that they are, you know, that they're going to means test this 1400 bucks, but, you know, I'm not willing to take anybody down over that. Uh, The, the future, I can't say this strongly enough, emphatically enough, the future of democracy depends on the ability of the Democratic Party to prove that a democracy can deliver results to the people. And the Republicans are gonna fight that every step of the way because they want that cynicism. They want people to say, oh, those Democrats, they talk big, but they never do a damn thing. I think I'll vote for the Republican. I mean, keep in mind, Donald Trump stole Bernie Sanders' platform. Yes. Donald Trump ran on raising yes. taxes on rich people. He said, I'm gonna get slaughtered by this thing. You know, people are gonna hate, my, my, my friends are gonna hate me. He, he campaigned on a, on a national health care. So he said, everybody's going to have health care and it's going to be cheaper than you ever, than you can imagine. It'll be better. And, and, and he campaigned on bringing factories home from overseas. You know, this was Bernie Sanders' agenda. Yes. He was lying through his teeth. But, you know, people were like, okay, cool. We're ready for some friggin' change. But you know what is interesting, um, Tom? Uh, Steve Smith, Republican turned Democrat. Mm-hmm. said exactly what you just said yeah our well, democracy it's not, it's not like it's a mystery it's fairly obvious maintaining our democracy runs through the democratic party right now yeah i agree that, and, and schmidt is talking like i am i mean he's like you know we're at this crisis point i, I you know I've, I've been i was first shocked and now very impressed by steve, steve schmidt and i'd love to have a conversation with him i doubt he would be willing to do it in public about i tried you know. to get him i mean i i wrote a piece about him he liked the piece when he liked the piece he followed me i said the good opportunity to get him now i try to get him when you get him let me know yeah <laughs> but but anyway I'm uh tom why I, he why he stuck with the republicans so long if he if he's this thoughtful and insightful I, I, no he he's a true conservative he re, he believes in small government he's a, he's a true small government type conservative where the free you know i mean he he doesn't he's a good guy but he he doesn't believe government should be as big as it is. I do believe in big government. I think government needs to be big. That's my opinion, because I think it needs to be bigger than any corporation. It needs to be as big as it needs to be to set to, to meet the needs of the people. Of the people. Of the country, you know? yeah. yeah. And that also means being bigger than the corporations as well, because if the corporations are bigger than the government, they own the government, you know. Right. So and you have oligarchy. Yeah, e- exactly. But anyway, Tom, I asked this, you you know this. What would you like to tell me that I didn't ask you and I should have? I think you did a very good job, Egbert. <laughs> I can't say you know, hey, guys, if, 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 if Brother Hartman says that, it means something. Tom, it's been my pleasure to have you on Politics Done Right as usual. Folks, please remember to uh, get the book, The Hidden History of American Oligarchy, Reclaiming Our Democracy from the Ruling Class. New York Times bestseller, buddy. Tom, thank, thank you for you. being on Politics and Right. Thank you, Egberto. It's always an honor and a pleasure to be on your program with you. You do great. Thank, thank you. I hope you enjoyed Tom Hartman. Folks, please remember we're still in FunDrive. Uh, please call 713-526-5738. That is 713-526-5738. My two offers, as I see it, Class Warfare, The Only Resort to Right Wing Doom, a book I wrote concerning the economy, how we actually can take reclaim it. And, of course, we also have It's Worth It, How to Talk to Your Right Wing Relatives, Friends, and Neighbors. The, it's all in the name. Folks, each of these books is a $120 contribution. We can always break that up. And $200 if you get them together, 713-526-5738. Again, you can get these or you can contribute whatever you can to KPFT in the name of Politics and Right to make sure that we can keep this station alive. Again, that is 713-526-5738 or kpft.org, kpft.org. My name is Egberto Willis. This is Politics and Right. And you know how I end this, baby. I am what? Out!
Welcome to Politics Done Right. I am your host, Egberto Willis. This is a progressive program that will take the mystery out of politics. This is the program that will encourage you to make sure government becomes we the people. Whether you are liberal, progressive, conservative, or otherwise, you get to hear your point of view. We are an independent media outlet that, unlike mainstream media beholden to corporations, we only owe allegiance to you. Remember, you can also send me a tweet at E-G-B-E-R-T-O-W-I-L-L-I-E-S. That is at Egberto Willis. Let us engage. It is politics done right. I'm Robert Conti. Chief of the Metropolitan Police Department. Unfortunately, traffic fatalities are up in the district, and I need your help to reverse this trend. Seatbelt save lives and reduce the risk of death or injury. Click it or ticket. I'm Robert Conti, Chief of the Metropolitan Police Department. Unfortunately, traffic fatalities are up in the district, and I need your help to reverse this trend. Seatbelt save lives and reduce the risk of death or injury. Click it or ticket.